So why does 69 degrees suddenly feel cool? Three months ago, I think we were sweating quite a bit when it was 69, but man, it's chilly, Laura. Um, I will take it, man. I, I, I appreciate the cool morning right now. All right. Well, we're not going to talk about the weather anymore. We got news to talk about on the latest episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Chris Wernowski. Jane Cahoon is away for the week, so we'll be winging it without her expertise on what goes on in Columbus. Let's get started. How far out of control is the surge in coronavirus cases in Ohio? And are we breaking records? Laura Johnston last week saw some staggering numbers. Our our average 21-day number keeps going up. And on Friday, we finally blew past the April one-day record, which was skewed because it was done in prisons, which were overrun by the thing. So this is quite distressing. Let's run through it. Yeah, there's a whole lot of statistics that we can show to point that we are surging. Uh, We are surging statewide in Cuyahoga County and in Cleveland, which has a separate Board of Health. Friday, we hit a new state record, 1,525 new cases. And then we also heard the same day that new coronavirus infections in the county suburbs had hit a record of 747 this week. Uh, that Which week. was way, way up, way up way, from the 484. Yeah, was yeah. the previous one from May 29th. And then Cleveland had its own record highs with 100 new cases logged on both Wednesday and Thursday. And Cleveland, Cuyahoga, as we've talked about and everyone knows at this point, is a red alert county ranked in the state, one of 12. We're close to being purple, which is the highest rating. We rank second statewide for new cases in the last week and fourth per capita, uh, if you're doing per person, at 112.9 cases per every 100,000 residents. Yeah, I, I we, we keep talking. It will be purple when they update the ratings later this week, but I, I still don't get what that means. The only difference that the, the the governor has said about the two. And if you look at their website, when you're red, they they recommend you reconsider non-essential travel. And when you're purple, they recommend you not take non-essential travel. But what does that mean? I just, you know, we're going to do some digging because we're about to be purple. And I think people are going to want to know, what do I do differently? You know, should I not go to the barber? Should I not go to the doctors. What does it actually mean? And if you do that, do you put people out of business? Uh, We're on the cusp of it. The governor kind of owes us an explanation about really how does this change what we were doing in the red zone? There are a lot of people every time we talk about the surge, Laura, that say, well, that's just because we're doing more testing. It's not, there's no surge. This is bogus. The the, uh, Ohio Right to Life sent out a whole thing last week saying, don't believe the media, there's no surge. But that's just a lot of hoo-ha, right? Because the positivity rate defines where we are. Exactly. And so we have done nearly 1 million tests. So we have done more tests. But the positivity rate on a seven-day rolling average is about 5 point something percent. On Friday, we were up to 6.7 percent. I mean, that's a big jump when we're talking about a million tests. So uh, there are just more people that that have the infection. And Coronavirus cases among Ohioans age, under age 40, we talked about this last week, they keep increasing. They're increasing three times as fast as people age 70 and older. And now they make up more than half the cases total, which is a huge difference from March when we were talking about people. Um, it was the older people who generally had it. So as well, of Friday, let's, they're, yeah. let's talk about that a little bit, because you could put that actually, I think, 
on the governor because he reopened bars. I mean, we've talked about this in the past. Before the reopening, people under 40 were largely doing what they were supposed to do. They were staying home. They weren't socializing. But the message from the state was, hey, go back to the restaurants, go back to the bars, just be careful. Well, whenever you mix alcohol and the words be careful, be careful kind of disappears, right? So so all these people have gone back to the bars. We've all seen the photos and some of the the more troubling cases. And this thing is spreading like crazy in that age group. I'm a little bit surprised that you don't see a focus in Ohio on the bars. I understand that. I mean, they have focused on young people when they talk and they're really trying to appeal to, you know, yeah, but they're, just, just words. But they're not doing anything. And when they originally said the bars and restaurants can open, they made a point of saying, we are not differentiating between bars and restaurants. We are saying that if you are seated and you are staying six feet from people, it doesn't matter what kind of establishment it is. But the problem is, I don't think that's being followed. If you're looking at the photos, people are not sitting down at a table six feet from other people drinking. They're standing up shoulder to shoulder, no masks on, drinking. And you're right. When you get inebriated, you throw caution to the wind and you're like, everything's great. It's fine. And you're, you know, you're spewing anything that's in your body. Well, and you have to talk loud to be heard because it's a noisy setting. And we know that talking loud helps spew the virus more. Yeah, it's 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 out of control in the group that's 40 and under. They don't die, but they do get sick. And look, the other thing we don't know about this virus is how long it will have an effect. Think about chickenpox as an example, right? Uh, you know, most of us before there was a chickenpox vaccine got chickenpox. You get over chickenpox. But that virus plants itself in your spine somewhere, waits till you're old like me and your immunity goes down. And then it comes raging back as shingles. What will this virus do? Because because the science has shown it is not just a lung ailment. It gets into the brain, the heart and the organs. What what is the long term effect? We have no idea because right. it's so new. And yet all of these people are getting it because they're socializing. They're not wearing masks. And- and there are still, I've read two disturbing reports this morning. One was like a 30-year-old guy in Texas who went to a COVID party purposely to try to get infected, and he died. And then we have a 37-year-old out of Port Clinton, an Army veteran, who died, I think, three days after he tested positive after telling people he didn't have to wear a mask. I mean, these are people that didn't have pre-existing conditions. They didn't think that they were at risk. And these are healthy guys in their 30s who died. I mean, and it's the 30-year-old not- guy said to the nurse shortly before he died, I think I made a mistake. And it's like, I mean, yeah, it's a pretty big mistake. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did a battery of Cleveland police officers fire dozens of pepper spray pellets at a Cleveland man who was simply trying to enter his apartment building in downtown Cleveland on the night of the May 30th riot? Chris Warnowski, of all the stories that Corey Schaefer has done and the videos he has procured, this one to me was the most horrifying because you see the the wall of people just descending down the street, firing away at a guy who is doing nothing. What's going on with this story? So shortly after we started writing about the young man who got from Sandusky who lost his eye by being shot, we got wind of this other video that that was starting to sort of make the rounds. And 
And Corey reached out to the guy in this video who was shot by a bunch of officers while he was trying to get into his apartment at the residence at uh, 1717, which is a, an apartment building downtown on uh, 9th and Superior. And this guy, his name is Kyler Lurs, was uh, coming home from a cookout uh, in Mayfield Heights. And it's what's fascinating about this story, to me at least, is is that this is somebody who had a very good opinion of police and was really not paying much attention to what was going on in the news that day. He went to a cookout, he, he came home and then he, he, he sort of looked around and was like, what's going on downtown. And in the video shows him trying to get into his apartment building. And there's a guy who, I don't know if police were pursuing this guy or what was going on, but there was a gentleman who kind of comes up and gives him a bear hug in the video. And as this this sort of line of police officers in riot gear are coming down the street, he's kind of got his back to them trying to get into his apartment building with his key fob. And you sort of see you see a shot kind of land at the at his feet. And then you just see a, a barrage of these pepper well, he, balls. Just he gets hit up. in the head. The next right. shot is yeah, in his he gets head. Hit in the and. And it, I think he had a hat on and it knocked his hat off. And, and I mean, he just, he had welts all over his back. He shared photos of his injuries and everything. And I mean, it just, it, it was it, so it, egregious. And, it was wanton. And what, what threw me is he gets into his building finally. And as the door is closing, they're still firing at the door as they walk by. I mean, that just is not okay. Really, everybody who was firing at him, committed a crime if you or I did it. You're firing in an unarmed guy who has done nothing wrong, is just trying to get into his building. And it's criminal. I cannot believe that this won't result in some sort of criminal case review. Well, if they can identify these officers, it's what's what's really fascinating about this story, again, to me, is is that, you know, here's a guy who's talking about, you know, he told an anecdote to, to Corey about, how he bought a cop's coffee for him when he was in line with him a few weeks ago and, or a while ago. And, you know, and this is somebody who comes from kind of a conservative family and, and he, what, what you see in this is how experiencing something like this evolves people's understanding of, of what people are talking about when they talk about police overreach and police use of force and the stuff that goes on over and over and time and time again in cities all over the country and police departments everywhere. Uh, and, 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 you know, he, you know, he talks about talking to his family about this and then saying, well, what did you do wrong? And, and how that has sort of changed how he views these things when he, he reads about them. And well, sees about them in the media. I want to explore that a little bit because I'm getting emails just about every day from people who accuse us of being anti-police and, you know, they say, you don't know what it was like to be a police officer down there under siege. So how can you question what they're doing? And I know there were moments where individual officers might've felt at some risk, but there was no officer in that line that was in any risk. There was a whole bunch of guys in riot gear, completely protected, firing away at people. And this isn't about being anti-police or pro-police. It's about what is the truth? of what happened that night. And this is another piece of the truth that ought to disturb every taxpayer because your taxes pay these guys and they're attacking the citizenry in a right. way I've never seen before in Cleveland. This well, is 
downtown Cleveland police department that has been through Tamir Rice and Brelo and was supposed to have, through the consent decree, gotten all the training to reform themselves. And this is one of the most egregious acts I've ever seen them do against somebody that's just trying to get home. And look, you look, you and I have have covered police. You and I have been doing this job a long time. And and I've done it in multiple cities. I've seen the same behavior out of police across the country. And and at some point, you have to sort of take stock of the fact that this is happening everywhere and that a denial of that is nothing but cognitive dissonance. Like you are you are willfully choosing to ignore something that is just by sheer volume a problem. Like if, well, if you just take look, into account where and like how much this is happening everywhere. And forget our word, really right? Don't 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 take our word for it. Watch right. the videos that Corey has posted of the guy getting his eye taken out and of this. Watch that video and then come back and explain how this was okay. That that yeah. that this is we have no idea what it's like to be a police officer. They're supposed to be trained to de-escalate. This is what you call an escalation. Anyway, Corey continues to do just stellar work to dissect what happened that day. And I'm, I'm proud of this hell that, that we have him on our staff championing this cause because somebody has to do it and it's not happening anywhere else. Maybe the, the monitor and the consent decree will finally do it. City council clearly doesn't give a damn. They're doing nothing about it. We're seeing nothing from the administration of Frank Jackson. We're seeing nothing from Armin Budish. I mean, these were their people that were mm-hmm. doing this. They owe it to the residents to get to the bottom of it, and they just don't seem to, to care. They keep promising an investigation eventually. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How will Cuyahoga County enforce the coronavirus mask requirement? As we all know, Mike DeWine put a mask requirement on any county that was in the red zone. There's a bunch of them now. We're up to 12. But he doesn't have money to enforce it. He doesn't have a police force to enforce it. He's counting on the locals. We spent a couple of days trying to get answers from the county on how they were going to do it. And Laura Johnston, we finally have an answer. And it's much more about snitching than it is proactive policing. Yeah, we've been asking since I think the news came out on Tuesday that this was going to happen. And or was it Monday? I'm the days go by in a blur, right? But anyway, they the order was not posted until an hour after it had gone into effect, and the board kept telling us, "We don't know. We haven't seen the order." So finally, at two thirty on Friday, they had a news conference, and they said they're going to rely on complaints about businesses or individuals not following the rules. They created a hotline and a website, and county workers are going to sift through these complaints and contact people who are not following them. The sheriff's department are only going to be called in for flagrant violations or disturbances of the peace. Yeah, you know, and I use the word snitching facetiously. I mean, it's what they're setting up is a way for people to report it. But but I do question whether that's the best way. I mean, the the, the idea that it's going to take you to inform on the your neighbor, or the person you see in the store, it, it it just it puts the onus on on people in a way that that may not be the smartest way. Mike DeWine keeps saying, I don't want to see people arrested for this. This is a public education campaign. So why not go with what a subtexter suggested? That's my text account where I send out the stories, what we're working on and questions we're trying to answer. Somebody sent me a suggestion, you know, instead of the penalty side, do the carrot side. Why not have businesses offer an incentive to people 
to wear the mask, you know, some discount on their groceries or something. And then Mike DeWine, why not help with that incentive by providing some kind of stipend to businesses that do that? Then it's not the the malice and, you know, creating conflict in the grocery store aisle. It's it's a it's a positive thing. Hey, do this. You're, you're helping your neighbors and you save a little money. But there's no talk of that. Instead, well, it's call up, report somebody, cause the, the police to come running out. It just doesn't seem like the smartest way to, to change the way people feel. I, there's two parts of this. I agree. This is an education re- campaign. And we had Mary Kilpatrick write a story about this. And she talked to experts. And it's like the seatbelt law. It's about education and making a safe recommendation part of the habit. Like most people would never start driving without a seatbelt at this point. However, it's a little more nuanced and that took 30 years. Okay. Right. We don't have 30 30 years. We don't have 30 years for this. And also this is kind of like drunk driving because you can hurt other people with, if you have coronavirus, but the issue about the business owners is because they don't want to be in the middle of it. They, they don't want to have to make a decision. They don't want to alienate any customers, whether they want to wear masks or don't want to wear masks. So we've asked about this incentive and they say, we just want to be hands off and point to a state law that says, sorry, we can't do anything about it. We must follow the law. This is the law. It's like the equivalent of a reporter saying, sorry, but my editor is making me do this. And then the onus is not on them. Well, and this is Chris Wanowski. <laughs> one of the, one of the, uh, you know, one of the things that is, is, is important is that it really shouldn't I mean, it shouldn't fall on the business to try to enforce this. And and Houston made this point a couple of times, I think. And because you are, I mean, you see these performative outrage videos that are, are you know, seemingly viral every single day of the week. You know, and nobody wants to put themselves in danger for these kind of jobs. Imagine how far we've fallen in like four months where four months ago we were saying these people are, heroes for working during this virus. And then people are coming out and just spitting on them and treating them like crap when they get asked to put on a mask. You know, there, there are people who are just never going to get it because they're going to have to admit they're wrong about something. And, and, and really, I think you don't want to put workers at risk of, of being beaten up by people or getting yelled at. I mean, that's taxing. That's mentally taxing. That's it, it's already stressful enough that they have to work under these these situations. So, you know, the alternative is some kind of enforcement. And, you know, I don't think we're going to see that either. And, well, it's and expensive. You can't you can't put a police right. officer in every grocery store. Or, yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, is that pragmatically that's impossible. So if you really want people to wear masks who don't want to wear masks, Maybe an inducement would be better than the hostile uh, conflict you're going to get when I start calling. You know, I'm going to call. Hey, I'm in the Walmart aisle seven, and there, there are two people here not wearing masks. You know, is a dispatcher going to send somebody off to to go deal with that, or they're going to add up when we get twenty complaints in Walmart? We'll send somebody there. I don't know. It just like rewarding people for doing the right thing seems childish in a way like i get i get the i get the motivation to say that maybe that will help but you know here we talk about but stop 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 stop. the the ultimate goal though is to have the the artificial herd immunity you get if everybody's wearing a mask right so if you get up to 90 percent or whatever the number is of people wearing masks you you pretty much stop the spread of this virus so so if that's your ultimate goal 
what's the most effective way to get there? Because it's politicized. You got all these people, I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not a sheep. You know, uh, give me liberty. But but they do worship the almighty dollar. And so would you be better off? Would you get to that artificial herd immunity faster by offering the reward instead of hitting them with the stick? I, I'm not saying it's right. I think people should just do this because they they want to do this. If we had a president that was leading and telling people we need to wear masks and all of the senators and congressmen and governors were aligned, probably be easier. But But with the situation right now, even if it's childish, is that the better way? That's the question. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it just like the fact that you have to ask the question really <laughs> bums me out. Like that's, that's what's that's what's getting lost here is that like you know we're we're trying to now like trick people into and do into doing the right thing in a country where we talk about duty and service in all of these other you know lofty noble ideas of America and and people can't wear a little piece of cloth over. Give me a break. I know. I'm look, I'm I'm right with you. You're <laughs> listening to this week in the CLE. Does the death of a Cuyahoga County jail inmate seem to fit the pattern of all the inmates who died during that eleven month stretch a bit over a year ago? Or does it look like something else? Chris Ranowski, we have a little bit more detail. What is it? Yeah. So uh, on Friday, the uh, investigators said that they have found no suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of Michael Womack, who uh, was found unresponsive in his jail cell early Wednesday. Um, The medical examiner said that there's going to be further testing and investigation that could take weeks uh, before we actually know how he died. But so far, there's no sign of foul play or, or any any notion that he may have taken his own life. So it doesn't really seem to fit the pattern of jail deaths that we saw uh, between 20, like June 2018 and, and spring of 2019, where nine people died of a combination of suicide and, and drug overdose. So, you know, th- this seems a, a little different. So we'll, I mean, we'll wait for the final report, but... It, it seems like it's not the red flag, six alarm, yeah. things are going bad at the jail again kind of thing. I mean, they have had a long run of relative calm there, but, you know, partly because there's so many fewer people there. But, um, OK, we'll wait and see it's this right. week in the CLE. Is a mild case of the coronavirus similar to a mild case of the common cold? Every time we talk about the uh, coronavirus The people that want us to focus more on the economy point to the death rate. They say, you know, not that many people are dying. It's a low percentage, although you could debate that. But there's another factor, Laura Johnston, in that there are long term effects for a lot of people of this virus that are pretty devastating. Julie Washington did an interesting takeout on this over the weekend. What did she find? Yeah, this is not the flu. This is not just like one or two days, you're not feeling so great, and then you're back to to normal. I was stunned by this story. Um, It's about how young people can get really sick, and it can last months or maybe forever. No one really knows because this disease is so new. They call themselves the long haulers, and they still count as a mild case because most of them never went to the hospital. But the symptoms can include extreme fatigue, shortness of breath, fever, cough, loss of appetite, diarrhea, vomiting, brain fog, short-term memory loss, insomnia, hallucinations, vertigo, hearing and vision loss, and tremors. I mean, this has been going on for 100 days for one of the people she talked to who's um, 
Northeast Ohio native who now lives in New York, I've now seen people sharing similar stories on Facebook as one reason that kids should not be going back to school. And uh, it's a really scary idea. A study came out over the weekend after Julie had completed her story that quantified this. And it was an alarmingly high percentage of people that I think it was in England. Don't hold me to that. That said that long term after they had at least one kind of devastating symptom, the the just overwhelming fatigue or the fevers or other things that that just kept dogging them, that they went from feeling you know, in a, it, before they got sick, 95% said they felt healthy. And I think the number months after they had the virus, they were down in the 40s or lower about feeling healthy. That this thing, yeah, it's not killing them. It's not even putting them in the hospital, but it is wrecking their health. So they don't feel like trying to stay fit because they don't have the energy and all of the things that they counted on before are out the window. It's a frightening story. The long hauler's name is interesting. I wonder where that came from. Well, I guess because they're in it for the long haul. But, you know, if you end up going to the hospital and you're on intensive in intensive care on a ventilator, you can have serious long term health problems too: impaired lung function for the rest of your life, neurological problems, cognitive deficits. And this disease has been linked to strokes. I mean, I know we keep talking about it, but this is so new. We have no idea what it's doing to us long term. Well, and I've talked about this before. The thing that frightens me is, will this implant itself in the organs or somewhere in the body the way some others do? And then when your immune system you know, falls apart as you get older, come roaring back in some unforeseen mm-hmm. way that we're unaware about. This is a, a scary virus. That's why it's, it's where we should all be wearing masks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there any way to make school buses safe when transporting students during the coronavirus pandemic? This is a pressing question. Schools are all heading down the road to reopening. And I didn't think school buses were safe before the coronavirus. <laughs> Chris Hernowski, how can you possibly make a school bus a safe environment that stops the spread of the coronavirus? Well, you can try. Um, I mean, these are, you know, experts sort of believe that these could be hives for the virus and infection and the spread of it uh, if if people aren't careful because it's just an enclosed space where, you know, if, if remembering back to when I was in school, you know, everybody ran, you know, we ran all over the place and did whatever we wanted on the bus. And, right. And so it's, you know, I like one of the challenges is basically, you know, how do you keep kids, you know, still, how much are you going to be cleaning these buses and, you know, it's going to require a lot of scheduling and, um, and, and frankly, you know, driving a bus is not, you know, it's not, it's, if, if you're adding more to that job, that's, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a big ask of bus drivers, but you know, well, one Pete Krause, Pete Krause yeah. pointed out that a lot of them might have the underlying conditions that make them vulnerable. And so they need some kind of protection from the kids walking by, you know, they might need plastic cages or something. Right. But but one of the other things Pete said is one strategy might be to separate kids by an empty seat or have siblings sit together. But th- how do you do that and move all those kids to school? Can, I, I just I Can I, I can I add in here because yeah, I have a fourth grader and a second grader. Um and I've got the bus survey um 
over the weekend. And so they they say they are going to be adding a custom-built plexiglass barrier around the driver's seat. They're going to have roof vents and windows open whenever possible for maximum maximum ventilation. And in February? It says whenever possible. So <laughs> bundle your kids up. Two battery-operated cordless backpack electrostatic cleaning machines for full fleet sterilization nightly. And extra time added to routes for sanitizing between each conveyance and after each afternoon and morning route. Now these my kids have been routinely sitting three to a seat on these buses, and they don't they're not in the on the bus for well, actually they're on the bus for about a half hour, um, even though they don't live more than a mile from the school because they go back and forth and back and forth. They've always loved the bus ride. Unlike Chris Warnowski, these buses, my kids are not getting up and running around the aisles, but they are close to other kids. And so they are trying to ask parents, like, are you willing to take your kids to school? And this is a whole new issue because a lot of parents are probably still going to be working from home. They might be able to get their kids to and from school when they wouldn't have been in the past, which creates a whole nother issue about right, wait, 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 let, 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 let me stop you. Okay. okay. So. You have made no, this is, you, you also, we're talking to Laura Johnson. You, you've oh, made you. no mystery of the fact that, that you're having a challenge of working while your kids are at home. So if you have the choice between the inconvenience of driving your kids to school or having them at home, what, oh, what is the inconvenience? I will be driving with? my kids to school. However, I, my fourth grader, I want him to ride his bike to school. This would be a whole new thing for him. So I'm hoping this would solve some problems. Um, second grader can't really do that yet, but it, it's just, it is a big issue for schools and parents. And it's, you know, I mean, the whole idea is just massive. Well, and that's and, all and anybody can talk about. But it's, it's not just an issue for, you know, work at home, you know, people, you, you know, I mean, you're going to see again, sort of a patchwork of addressing this issue among different districts, especially, you know, if if a district is cash strapped, you know, how are they going to to do this? And well, in Cleveland, they use so the kids are they're going to be riding with adults on the RTA buses. Right. And how does that work? Yeah, and we've had RTA drivers get sick, and we, you know, there's, you know, it, this is going to impact all parents. You know, not just the the work from home parents. No offense, Laura, but Laura, you know, Laura, you know Laura, the people, but the people who you know have to go out and you know be these frontline you know, workers, you know, I mean, they're going to have to really make some tough decisions. I mean, it's, it's a lot of people don't have the option to drive. Them. You're right. You're right. And so Laura, it's, okay. it's, go, go ahead. Laura, real quick. Does, do the guidelines say that the kids should wear masks in the bus? Uh, yes. They have to wear masks on the bus in the school. So yes. Okay. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Wow. We packed a lot into uh, the Monday podcast. It's always, there's always news to talk about on Monday. It's Tuesday, Wednesday that we all have a little bit of a dearth. So thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We will return on Tuesday. <laughs>